Good morning. I love that. You guys sound good this morning. Good morning. I hope I sound just as good. Um, <laughs> my name's Adam, for those of you who don't know, and I just want to give a special welcome for those of you that don't know. It's because you are likely a guest, and I just want to give a special welcome to you. Uh, I'm going to, my, my commitment to you, if you're a guest, is that I'm going to work really hard to share something from my heart, uh, from the scriptures, and I want to do it in a way that is intelligible to you. You may not agree with it all, but I want to give it to you in a way that you can process it, interact with it, and push in uh, with it. For those of you that know who I am, uh, just a a big welcome to you. It's probably you know who I am because you're here week in and week out. You're part of uh, the Bethany family. And I am excited to walk with you over these next eight weeks on this series of the road to recovery. Really excited about this to kick this thing off. Now, I wasn't always excited, and I want to kind of give you the story as how this series happened. And I think in that, um, hopefully we all get excited together. Uh, One thing I want to mention briefly before we jump in is there is this thing, uh, known journal in your bulletin. There is an actual pamphlet with a similar imaging on it. Uh, What this is, is at Bethany, we say, uh, we are glad that you're here. Uh, we're glad you get plugged into a life group, or maybe there's a, there's a group right now meeting downstairs, uh, working through um, a teaching there. And again, we're glad that you do that stuff. We're glad you connect with your friends. Yet I would say, as important as all that is, what we would say is so crucial is to learn to, to strengthen those muscles of sitting down in the presence of God by yourself. Uh, just you and him, uh, you and your dad, if you will. They kind of use that language. And listening to him, talking to him, and interacting with him. So to help you do that, we know it's kind of intimidating. We put together this journal. I would mention this. Maybe you fell off the wagon. Maybe some of you had this as a, something you're going commit, to commit to doing. And over the summer, it's like, ah, uh, you kind of tailed off through vacation. Uh, this is a great time to kick it back into gear. Uh, starts today. Page 13 is that, and it'll run us all the way through Christmas. We're almost in that season. Here we go. Um, season two, football starts this weekend. I just, I need to plug this. Uh, Penn, I'm a big Penn State guy, but I'm a big Miami Dolphins guy, and it was really exciting to see the season open up with a Patriots loss. I mean, I just, yeah. Some of you feel that uh, excitement. <laughs> uh, but anyway, here we go. Celebrate recovery. Um, is kind of coming, and I want to tell you the story how it got here, which leads to how we ended up with this series, and, and I think it'll help us kind of, so I want to intro the whole series, and then we'll dive into specifically for this morning. So last winter, I'm a part of a thing called uh, Community Collaboration. Uh, it meets three times a year. It, is, it meets at uh, Garden Spot High School, and we come into a room uh, there at the high school, sit all in a huge, gigantic circle, and in the room, you have pastors, you have NGO leaders, you have non um, um, business leaders, you have elected officials, both state and local, you have your uh, chief of police and other representatives from law enforcement, you have um, CEOs, you have uh, representatives from the library, and it is all kinds of community, people who have a stake in our community, if you will, uh, influence in our community. We sit around and we answer and talk about uh, two things. The first question is, what is this community really strong at? What are we good at? And how can we continue to, to, to flex our muscles in those areas. And the second thing we ask is, um, what, is, what are the opportunities that lay ahead of us? What are the things that, man, we, if we could all work together, could we tackle um, one of these uh, things? 
Now, I walk into the room, and what I do when I step into this environment is I always just kind of say a short prayer, and I'll say, God, direct my heart and put me in the seat that you need me in today to connect and network and work with and build relations uh, with people that I can, I can bring our influence, Bethany's family, into connection with some others that really make a difference. And so I walk into the room. I survey the room in this particular meeting. I see a seat over um, next to an individual that I've been praying about uh, doing some things with. I'm like, man, here's my opportunity, God, yes. And I scan the room, and I see an another seat over here and something inside. You remember those moments where you're sure you're supposed to go one way and then God kind of stirs and you're like, man, no, actually, I think I need to go this way. I don't know why, but I'm going to obey. So I do it and I sit down. I introduce myself to a girl by the name, a lady by the name of Irma. Uh, She introduced herself as Pastor Irma. That's all I really knew. Uh, We interact a little bit. Then the meeting starts. Now, during the meeting, uh, we talk about that particular meeting, and we talk about some of the things that we struggle with in our community, housing, affordable housing, uh, transportation, a big deal, kindergarten readiness is a big deal in our community. Um, we have 40-some-odd percent in our community here in Eastern Lancaster County that get free and reduced lunches, uh, so poverty is, a, is an issue here in our community. Um, but then the conversation shifts towards what, what many of you know and understand and you experience, and that is... Uh, um, heroin and drug addiction. And so we're kicking this around and our chief of police is talking and he's sharing a statistic that blew my mind. He said, you know, we have 66 or some odd thousand people in eastern Lancaster County, but we use more Narcan than, than school districts that are two and three times bigger than us. Uh, Narcan is the, the substance that um, when someone ODs on heroin, they make the phone call, uh, they come out and basically Narcan's a thing and, and a layman's turn that brings them back, uh, if you will. Um, so again, and, and you don't get arrested for making these phone calls. So uh, we use a lot of it here. So we're talking about this. And then suddenly the person sitting beside me speaks up and she says to the group, she says, do any of you familiar with Celebrate Recovery? And the reason she's asking, she's telling the story of a young lady that she's working with that's about to be released from a state institution. And the state institution, this is not a Christian-run organization, says when you get home, find a Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian recovery ministry for her, with those with Hertz habits and hang-ups. So she's asking the question, and all around the room, um, you're hearing people say, well, I know of one in Parksburg, and I know of one over in Ephrata, and I know of one in Mannheim, and no one knew of any in Eastern Lancaster County School District. Um, we possibly one that, was, that came up that's starting in Morgantown, and So we're kicking this around. Well, it piqued my interest because I know a great deal about Celebrate Recovery. And what I really know about Celebrate Recovery, more than that, is there is someone in this church named Carol Musser who had come to me about five, six years earlier and said, we need to start this thing. And I said no to her then. I said no because it's a 52-week Week in, week out, recovery ministry. You don't take time off. It's a lot of resources, a lot of energy. And I'm like, man, we, that's, that's in over our head on that one. And then also at the time, I was not certain that Bethany had a recovery mindset. And I'm like, man, we got to, not right or wrong, but you got to have a unique DNA to really take and tackle and walk with that. So I said no. So, um, so she's talking, and the, the meeting wraps up, and um, I turn to her and introduce myself again. And I say, hey, um, I know a lot about this ministry, and we get talking, and the next thing, one thing leads to another. She tells the story how when she came in, her prayer was, God, I feel compelled to talk about Celebrate Recovery. I don't know why, and I really feel that someone is here today that we can partner with. 
And so I look at her and I say, well, here I am. <laughs> Let's partner. Uh, so it turns out she is Lester Zimmerman's wife. Lester is, some of you know Lester. Um, Lester's a great pastor, uh, leads pastor, uh, Petra Church over in New Holland. And uh, so she leaves, I leave. I get in the phone right away with Carol Muster, and I say, Carol, I'm giving you the green light. And you know Carol, you know Carol? She's like, yes, here we go. She's running at it. And before long, we've got a board formed. We've got volunteers being recruited, and Celebrate Recovery is on its way. Uh, We launched Celebrate Recovery on September 21st. So we are sitting as a board. I'm sitting around the table, and we're interacting with how to effectively do this, partnering with three churches, which doesn't happen a lot. Churches don't often work together well uh, for all kinds of reasons. So we're working together, trying to make this thing happen with this board. And one of the things that we hear is um, Saddleback Church, which launched Celebrate Recovery, has this sermon series, uh, The Road to Recovery, that they strongly encourage churches to preach through. Now, uh, so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, this is an eight-week series. No way. It's eight weeks in, in our prime. I mean, this is the time of year when you guys are all done with your vacations. You're coming back in. The, the church world kind of runs on the school calendar, and we're kicking things back into gear. This is the time of year when pastors love to get on stage and give their best vision message that they have and kind of you know, say, here we go. And I'm thinking, I am not giving up eight weeks. And we don't, why do we need to do that? Uh, so in me wrestling with this, I sit down with some friends. One of them's a pastor, and here's what he said to me. He said, Adam, the struggle with churches that start Celebrate Recovery is oftentimes, without realizing it, without intending to, they form two churches. You have the group that's meeting during the week, who's recovering. Then you have the group that meets on Sunday morning that doesn't get recovery. And when people move from this group into this group, they don't connect well. And therefore, you almost have, and he told multiple stories, and he said, the second thing Most churches that start Celebrate Recovery, out of a good heart, they say, here we are, we're going to launch this ministry to help who? Those people, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the eudanalists. We're going to help those people. And he looked at me and he said, the problem with that mindset, Adam, is it's not about those people. It's about you. He looked at me across across the table. He says, it's about you. It's about us. For a church to really do recovery ministry well, they have to embrace and understand that recovery is not about them, us helping them, but us walking together. We all are in recovery. So as I walked away, I said, okay, let's do the series. I'll do it. Uh, and so here's where we want to kind of start. Wanna, so that's the intro to the whole thing. Now here's where we're going to go this morning. What do you need recovery from? You. If he's right, and it's really not about them, but it's about us, what do you need recovery from? Now, when you hear this, immediately you may think, well, Adam, I don't like alcohol. I don't touch this stuff. I have no problem with alcohol. You may think, you know what? Someone could sit right here in front of me right now and shoot up or smoke a joint, and I wouldn't even know they were doing it. That's how oblivious I am to the drug reality. You may say, well, Adam... I hear you talk about porn as a reality. For anyone under the age of 40, you just assume that they've got a problem with it. Well, I don't know. I don't have a problem with it. You may say, I've no, I don't look at this stuff. I'm not, I'm not drawn to this stuff. It's really not me. Some others of you may say, well, I don't have an addiction to food. I, have no, I control this thing. I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm, I've got this thing down. Well, let me push in. There's some of the big ones that we often think about, but all of us have that thing, that thing, put it in quotes, that you can't control. Every one of you in this room, I dare say, has that thing that you cannot control. 
Now, it may not be life-dominating, life-controlling, life-destroying, but you have that thing that you can't control. For example, maybe it's the anger. You know, your dad was angry, and you vowed, I'm not going to be angry with my kids, but here you are sitting in your desk watching your little girl walk out of the room after you just exploded in some rage of anger towards her, and inside of you, you're going, ah, I did it again. I don't want to do this. Maybe for you, it's you're driving home after you had the date with all your friends. You've got, you know, you're leaving Starbucks, and you're coming home, and you're recounting all the conversation that just played out, and you're like, I think about 70% of that conversation was about people who weren't at the table. Why do I always go here? Why do I do this? Maybe for you, it's uh, you're sitting there and you're scrolling on the phone and you're going through it and you're having a good time reading about everyone's vacations, looking at the happy families that are all around, looking at what everyone, looking at the new car, looking at, and you're scrolling and you're scrolling and inside your spirit, you're getting, you know, that, that, that envy, that covet, that the stuff is starts to, but after a while, you look at the clock and you realize an hour, an hour, I've been on this thing an hour. Maybe for you, it's um, you come into that quiet place. Maybe it's your drive to work or in the shower, laying down at bed at night, and, and as soon as everything shuts off around you, you immediately begin to have that imaginary conversation with that person that hurt you three weeks ago, three months ago, or three years ago, or maybe 30 years ago. And you get all done, you get to work, or you get done with the shower, and you think, man, what in, I've just spent the last 20 minutes of my time bitter and upset at someone. I don't want this. Maybe for you, it's worry or anxiety or lying. You lie to your mom or your dad for the 10th time, or maybe to you it's language. You're coming home from work, and you're justifying it in your mind because, after all, that's how warehouses and, and these work environments are, but you know your mouth is filthy, and you don't want it to be. Maybe for you it's just simply a codependent relationship. You've derived your happiness, your identity, your satisfaction on helping them, and after a while, you're not helping them anymore, and, and you don't understand, and you're stuck, and you're trapped, and you want out, and, and, and you just don't know how to do it, or maybe it's depression or trauma. You go on down the list. What is it that you need recovery from? What is that thing that you can't seem to control? Now, what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to talk about that thing in a recovery mindset. Um, now, uh, Celebrate Recovery uses eight steps, and they build it off the word recovery. So step one begins with an R. This is kind of, we're going to try and work through these each week. So this morning is simply realizing, if I'm going to recover, I need to realize I am not God. In other words, I need to admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do wrong things. I am powerless to control my tendencies to do wrong things. I cannot manage my life. Specifically, when I talk about life, those areas, those, those sin-dominating things, I cannot manage sin. Sin cannot be managed. Got to do something far different with it. Now, we hate this teaching. I'm going to be right up front. We hate it. Doesn't it feel really good when someone says, you can't control your life? Our American system, our Puritan work ethic, we, we, we build and pride ourselves on the self-starter, the self-made person, the, the American dream. And when someone comes along and says, no, you can't do it, we hate it. But this is where recovery and this is where life starts. This pushes against God's gift of autonomy. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about suffering, that God wired, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, says every single one of you has been created for a kingdom. You've been created to rule and to reign. You've been given autonomy, and there's the autonomy of the self, and you're freeing. You're not a puppet. All of us are free. So when we stand up and we say, well, you're not free, it's like, well, no, wait a minute, Adam. I really am free, and this pushes against that. Yet as much as we have that free will, 
all of us in this room has a very unfree will. I want to talk about that this morning. All of us have a very unfree will, and it's called, the, the theological term I'd use for it is my sin nature. So what I do this morning, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 7, we're going to spend time in one passage and work through it. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. It's page 940 in the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. We're going to look at how unfree we really are. We are not free. Now, when I say that, I'm not getting into the theological construct of predestination and election and all that other stuff, if you're familiar with those terms. It's not where we're going. We're going to talk about the parts of us that just control us. Now, Romans chapter 7, for context, is we don't just jump in the middle of this without understanding where we're at. So if you come, uh, Romans is written by a guy by the name of Paul. Uh, he's, written, he's writing to a church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. It's a letter. It's one of his most theological letters. It's got this depth, and, but it's also got a lot of practicality to it. Uh, he's writing, he was a guy who was, had his PhD in religion. Uh, he stepped out to destroy anyone associated with Jesus Christ. Well, then he meets Jesus Christ and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and makes it his mission to plant churches based on the message of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what he's doing. And so he's writing this letter, kind of advocating that message from a theological framework. Uh, chapter 5, it's all about, hey, we are all sinners. It, it came through one man sin entered through one man, therefore life comes through one man. Chapter 6 kind of gets in how, how that sin is broken by Jesus and his grace abounds. And, and so then it gets into this tension, well, if his grace abounds, does that mean his um, grace abounds? I mean, I just go on sinning so I have more grace. And so he gets into that tension, which ultimately leads to the t- discussion on the law and what is the law and how does the law work with grace? And so it gets into that and that's the conversation. That conversation is wrapping up when we get to this verse, verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law. That's the context. That's he's kind of kicking that around. So he says, the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I am all too human. And catch this next phrase. The trouble is with me for I'm all too human, a slave to sin. Now turn to the person beside him and just tell them they're a slave. Go ahead. Have fun with it. Just smile at him and say, you are a slave. Some of you are, I'm not mean, doing that. That's, uh. Now, when you're told that, how do you feel and what do you think? The word slave, when someone says to you, you are a slave, what imagery comes to your mind? I don't know, I think of movies like 12 Year a Slave. I think, of, I think of other things I've seen that Hollywood's put out there. I think of books that I've read. I think of my U.S. history that I've studied, and I bristle. I kind of get like, a slave? I mean, a slave is someone, someone owns me. I have no voice. I have no say. I have no control. And Paul, as he's writing, says, that is who you are. In your very nature, you are a slave. He says, push it in. So now here's the deal. This is why I love, I love C.S. Lewis. If you, you're around me at any period of time, you hear me use this quote probably, I don't know, once every other month, where Jesus came not to make bad people good. That will happen, but he ultimately came to make dead people to, alive. He came to make slaves free. That's why I would say it this way. If the will is truly free, you don't need a savior. You need a helper. And the Christian message isn't that I need a helper, it's that I need someone to save me because I am not free. I am a slave. And we hate this. We don't like this. Well, keep reading. Look at verse 15. Because you say, well, there's good in me, Adam. There's good in me. That's right. He's going to talk about the good in you. And the good in you becomes a problem. Verse 15. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to pause right there. How many of you experience that? 
Right? Some of you are brave enough to put your hand up. That's awesome. They say, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know what I say? Very few of you wake up today, woke up today saying, I just want to excuse my language. Some of you don't like this word, but I'm just going to say it just to really, I just want to suck today. You know, I want to be the worst husband my wife has ever seen or encountered or talked about. I want, to be the worst, I want to be the worst wife. I want to be the worst child. I want to be the worst associate. I want to be the worst. We don't do that. We, I don't, the things that we struggle with, we don't want to struggle with them. Some of us get to the point where we hate it. We hate it about it, but we struggle. Verse 16, but if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So that's the whole conversation about the law that it's written in my heart. That comes all the way back to chapter 3. Verse 17, so I am not the one doing wrong. Now we latch on to this. I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. We latch on to this. We think, see, there's good in me. It's really not me. And we, we begin to think, well, there's good in me, and we begin to try and manage that good and work with that good. And here's what we begin to say, okay, if I can control life, I can do this. So we'll get into things like, oh, I'll control my circumstances. The problem with my life, I know what the problem is. The problem with my life is, is I don't make enough money. I need to make more money. Well, to make more money, I've got to get more education. So I'm going to go back to school, and I'm going to get more schooling so I can make more money. Or you know what the problem with my life is? The problem is I live in this neighborhood. I should live in that neighborhood so my kids can go to that school. So we move across town. We think, well, I can control my circumstances because the problem is not me. I'm a good person. Or we start to control and we manage the people in our lives. We think, well, the problem is our friends. The problem is my mom. The problem is my dad. The problem is the person sitting next to me. The problem is them. And so I'm going to control and manage and change my friendships. Or we start to manage the pain. We think, you know what the problem is? The problem is the trauma. The problem is the stuff that's happened to me, so I'm going to cope and I'm going to manage my pain and all this stuff that, that has happened. Or maybe we say, well, you know what the problem is? The problem is my image. My self-esteem. So we work really hard to manage that, and we do the things necessary. But Paul says, listen, yeah, you've got good in you. We're going to talk about that. But you cannot control this. You're a slave. Look at verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me. Now, I love how he clarifies this because I would be a strong advocate. Paul does, too, in other places in the Scripture. You all have the image of God stamped in you. So there is good in every human being. I wouldn't say even if a person's not a follower of Jesus, they are still have goodness in them because of the image of God in them. So he's going to clarify. He's going to really drive a heart at stake at this. I know that there's nothing good lives in me. That is, he's going to give clarity, that is in my sinful nature. Notice little asterisks in your New Living um, translation. That asterisk will take you down, and I actually prefer the word that they give you as a, as a substitute, flesh. There's nothing in my flesh, my physical body. The thing that I was I born with sin influencing this body. Yes, I became a believer in Jesus, but I still have this sin in this body. So he goes on, the rest of the verse, I want to do what is right, but I can't. How many of you relate to that? I want to do this, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. We are a slave. We are not free people. This is one of the plainest teachings and experiences of the human existence. It's plain because we all experience it. If you'd all be willing to go home this afternoon or pass a mic or go home this afternoon and talk about it or pass a mic right now, all of us have a story of that thing that we cannot control, that thing that we do, that we hate that we do, that thing that we say, man, I did it again. Why do I keep doing this? 
It's, it's a plain teaching. We all know it. But it's also one of the most hidden truths of life because we hate to see it. We hate to look inward and think, well, the problem must be inside of me. Oh, my goodness. It is hidden because we don't want to see it. We believe that we can control it. We believe that we can do good. And the answer is you're a slave. You're a slave. Think about all this and how you're, uh, it's so often compulsive. You want to do what we want to do, yet often we do what we don't want to do. Think about the anger. Those of you who struggle with anger, think about it. The person, that, that, you get that person in your mind right now. All they got to do is you got to be in the room with them for two minutes. Two minutes. And they start talking. They maybe get to their second or third sentence. And you feel the blood pressure. You feel your heart pumping. You feel your fist clench. And before long, this compulsive stuff takes over. How about worry? Those of you who struggle with anxiety know the feeling of a, it's almost like an elephant sitting on your chest, sucking the air out of all the room. And, and you're, you're overwhelmed and you're, you, you can't. And if I look at you and say, well, come on, snap your fingers and change it. You can't. It's like this compulsive energy takes over. Depression. Depression's one I'm prone to. Been many a days when I just don't want to get out of bed. I just don't want to get out of bed. And I know that it's not right. I know I've got things to do. I know I've got to be productive. But I can't, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I self-teach myself, no matter what I preach to my heart, I don't want to get out of bed. Or how about eating? Have you ever been in that position where you had a long week, a really long week, you fought with your spouse one too many times, your kids maybe, your boss. You get home at the end of the week and you just sit down and you veg in front of the TV. You cope. And before long, you're staring at the bottom of the pint of Ben and Jerry's. It's gone. Oh, my goodness. Did I really eat all that? So then you get the, you, you, if you've been here, you, you know what you do next. You take the side of the container and you read it. I just don't read it. Just go throw it away. But you read it. Oh, my goodness. So you feel really bad. And you're like, I'm not going to do that again. Well, then it's a really long weekend. And then you're looking forward to another long week. And before long, you're sitting down watching Sunday night football. And you're at the bottom of the potato chip bag. And you're like, there's none left. This thing was, I just opened this. And so you do it again. You get the bag up. And oh, my word, there's really that many servings in there? It's compulsive. I don't know what yours is. We all have them. Some of them are prettier than others. Some don't do as much damage as others, but we all have them. Now look at the answer. Now the answer comes in verse 21 and on, and, and the answer is really we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. So I'm going I'm to throw it out. We're going to talk about it, but really the heart's right. I just want you to see that you're unfree this morning. And we're really going to kick the answer around in the coming steps. So here it is, verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. Very key word, is war with my what? Is war with my mind. Notice it doesn't say heart or emotions. The word is literally up here, because that's often how this works. I know intellectually I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I love God. I love his law. I love it, but the emotion... The compulsion, it takes over. This power makes me a slave, makes me a slave to the sin that is within me. Let me ask you this question. How do you become an unslave or free? 
From the U.S. history that I study and the books that I read, you know what happened if you were a slave and you ran away and tried and grabbed your own freedom? Your back was going to lose a lot of skin when you get home. If not, death. The only way a person becomes a non-slave who is a slave is how? Can they do anything about it? It's got to come from the outside. They've got to be freed or they've got to be set free or they've got to be bought and then released. So this is, this power makes me a slave. The end of verse 23 is power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Some of you can relate to that. Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now the answer comes in verse 25. Thank God. Remember, it's outside of us. Remember I started this? Realize that you are not God. You cannot manage your sin. You cannot manage your sin. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He conquered sin and death. He came to free us. He is our Lord and Savior. So you see how it is in my mind. So then he sums up the entire argument. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And then it, he, he comes back around to Jesus in chapter 8, verse 1. And I don't think there should be a break there. I, I can't stand how we do this to our scriptures. There should not be a break. It flows right into chapter 8, verse 1, which I'm going to read in just a minute. So hold on. So here it is. So he says, I'm a slave to sin. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ. I say it this way. Jesus didn't come to help the free. It's not why he came to this earth. He came to save the bound, to free the slave. And we're all slave at some capacity. That's why if you're going to recover, it's so important to just simply start with, to simply start with the fact that I'm not God. Now, we all know this. There's one of you in this room that puts your hand up and says, Adam, Adam, I'd like to disagree with you. I really think that I am God, Right? If you do that, suddenly the people around you are going to probably distance themselves. They're going to kind of move away. We don't, we don't really walk, but, but we live life in a way trying to manage our life, trying to control our life. And, and we do this in all kinds of unhealthy and sometimes even healthy ways to say, I am in control. And if you're going to recover, you've got to start by saying, I'm not God. Now, I wanted to primarily stick there in Romans 7. I want to show you one more verse. It's a verse with so much promise in it. It's so much hope, but most of us don't read the hope in it. But I want you to see it. James chapter 4, verse 6. James goes off in chapter 4. This is the half-brother of Jesus. He just goes off in chapter 4 and says, you guys are wicked. You're, and he just goes off. I've got all these idols, and you love the world more than you love God. You're, you're, you're adulterous people. But in the middle of this, he says this, and he gives grace generously as the scriptures say. So this is a promise. He gives grace generously as the scriptures say. Now look at what he's going to say. He's going to quote the scriptures. God opposes the who. Who are the proud? And the proud are the people who think they can do it. They can manage. They can cope. They can pull themselves up. They can work hard. They can make the right choices. They can make the good choices. They are in control. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the who. Humble. He gives grace to the humble. And then you come back around and he gives grace generously. So this first step can be a little scary, can be a little intimidating. Just realize I'm not God. You mean take my hands off the wheel? I mean, I'm not in control. That's what I'm saying. 
Here's the thing I've learned about this first step is this sounds like an attack on human dignity. When I stand and say, you're not free and you can't manage, it pushes in on us because God has wired us to be autonomous. He has wired us to be free. He's wired, and we say, no, 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 Adam, no, uh, uh, and it digs into those parts and it sounds like an attack on human dignity. But here's what I've learned. This is actually not an attack on human dignity, but it's the birthplace of compassion. If you're a person that does not believe, if you're a person that believes in the complete and total free will of man, then you hold to the person sitting next to you is responsible and they can make their choices and they can work harder like I worked harder and they can do this and they can do that and they can stop this. And if I think that, when I begin to encounter people with a problem, what do I do? You've got a problem. You've got to fix yourself. But if I live in a way that I understand that I am unfree, I am a slave. Do you know what I do when I encounter people that are broken and hurting and struggling and making poor choices upon poor choices upon poor choices? I say to myself, they don't really want this. They may not know that yet, but deep in, they don't really want this. And I don't do this, I put my arm like this. This teaching is the, is the bedrock, it's the foundation of a compassionate environment which is why I'm so glad we're going to work through this because if this church, Bethany Grace Fellowship, is going to succeed with CR, we accelerate recovery, we've got to understand that people are not free. And it creates such compassion. It kills shame dead in its tracks. People that walk into this place and are going to walk into our Celebrate Recovery meetings, they are loaded down with guilt. They're loaded down. They don't want to do it. That's why they're coming in. They don't want to smoke that next joint. They don't want to shoot up with that next needle. They don't want to hit that next. Um, uh, they, they don't want to do any of it. They don't want to be angry anymore. They don't want to be controlled. They, they want to be free. And to walk into an environment that says, you know what? I get it. I get it. You're not free. You know, the other thing with this is when we live thinking that we're free, we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves. Man, well, Adam, what's wrong with you? Adam, can't you just make the right choices? Can't you just... But when I step back and realize, no, there's a brokenness inside of me that I can't manage, I look at myself in the mirror with a lot more compassion. And I realize it's safe. God knows I'm not free. God knows I'm messy. That's why he sent Jesus. And that's where, the, that's where chapter 7 continues into the, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now... It's a continuation. Get rid of that chapter break. Right out of chapter 7. So here's how it reads. Right out of chapter 7, verse 25. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see that it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law. So he sums up the argument. In my mind, I want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. This verse is at the heart of a recovery ministry. This verse was given to me when I didn't know I needed recovery. And let me say this. What I've learned about learning this first step, this first step often takes a great deal of pain. My prayer, I'm going to pray at the end of this message, for those of you who need recovery and don't know it, I'm going to pray that God spares you that pain. Oftentimes what it takes to recover is you getting to the end of yourself. And oftentimes getting to the end of ourself, it's loss of a job, loss of life, loss, loss of something. We hit our face, one, two, three, four, and some of us need the two by four upside the head for the 20th time till we finally get it and say, oh my goodness, I need recovery. 
Well, when I was in that state, when I didn't know I needed recovery, I was working at a church right out of college, and Pastor Doug was the lead pastor. He became um, a a uh, life-giving person in my life. He he gave so much to me. And this is the verse. I remember sitting with him. Um, Some of you are going to laugh at this. I'm just going to preempt this. I'd ask that you not, but if you need to, go ahead. I was sitting with him, and he says to me, Adam, I've observed something in you. You're a hard-working individual, almost a perfectionist. I said, almost. I I am a perfectionist. He said, Adam, what happens when you fail? I kind of sat back, and it honestly took me by surprise. I'm like, fail? I'm not going to. Now, we can kind of chuckle at that, but that was arrogant. Arrogant to the core. But see, what a lot of you don't know is my backstory. And he, he was beginning to get to know my backstory. Where I grew up in a culture where failure was not an option, where things were just going to work out, where if you work hard enough, if you give enough, if, you, if you're dedicated enough, if you're committed enough, if you're, if you're everything enough, then it is going to all work out. And failure is not an option. And Doug began to realize the, the trauma in my soul that was forming because I didn't embrace failure. And he said, Adam, what happens if you fail? And I said, well, I'm not. And he goes, Adam, that's a problem. Well, just a few years after that, I failed, and I failed publicly. And it was miserable, and it was hard. I hit my face. But it's this thought he planned. He said to me in that day, he says, Adam, I want to give you this verse for when that failure comes. And I want you to know, Adam, you'd work so hard to avoid failure because you're so afraid of that word right there. But in Jesus, which is where you are, there is no condemnation. I need to realize that I'm not God, life is unmanageable, and that God is for me. Now, can you imagine, here's where I want to end this. Can you imagine three churches working together? It doesn't happen a lot. That's really cool. Three churches that are very different. In fact, if you walk over, to, if you were to attend Petra this morning during those songs, there'd be a lot more um, activity in the room than what we had here this morning. It's not right or wrong, but in Petra, you're going to walk over. What did we see in our room? I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm just going to kind of fold them here. Maybe I'll hold them here. Petra's, man, it's all over. Lots of life. We're different churches, and that's good. But oftentimes churches don't work well together. Can you imagine when these three churches, we're going, to, we're going to pull together along with CrossNet. Can you imagine three churches setting aside their peripheral differences that come into the core of what we buy into, and that is the message of Jesus Christ, and saying to this community, you're not God, yet there is a God who is for you, and he's not afraid of your mess. In fact, your mess engaged him to the point where it hung his son on a cross to give you the hope of new life and to set you free from the power of sin and death. I can't wait to watch this unfold. I cannot wait. Yet here's what I've learned. I've been more and more convinced of this. It all starts here, right here. Not just me because I'm the pastor. You can point at yourself. It all starts with you realizing you're not God, creating a culture of recovery. And what I do is I want to pray. Before I pray, I didn't warn these people that I'm going to do this, but in the risk of embarrassing them, I want to draw attention to some people. Um, The the reason I'm going to do this is because they mean a lot to me. We had, did this first service and a number of people were here and stood up. I want to ask those of you who are involved with this launch of Celebrate Recovery, 
whether it's you or you're sitting on the board, whether you are helping with sound or preparing meals or um, you're actually going to lead some of the group discussion, whether at any capacity, if you're involved with this launch of Celebrate Recovery, could you stand? I know I see some of you in here now. And please stay standing. There's three of you in here now. Awesome. And Chris is standing in the back. Chris is, Chris is one of the board members. He's, he's back there. Um, and what I want to do, I'll, please stay standing. I want to pray for these three and many more here at Bethany, at Petra, at Weaverland, and at Crossnet who are linking arms who are going to step into this. I want to pray for them. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us. I want to especially pray for those of you in this room that right now that think that you are God. I really want to say this very directly. Some of you in this room are not broken yet. And I'm going to really pray in this prayer that in grace, God breaks you gently. Because oftentimes it's not gentle until we get to the point of it. But I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to pray for all of us just to step into this thing and recover well. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for Celebrate Recovery. God, I just want to start by praying for those that are standing. We had a number standing in first service and some that weren't able to be with us this week. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for them. I know right now in this service we have Sandy and Amber. God, I, I just pray for them. I pray, pray protection in their family. I pray for, um, I pray for strength, encouragement, and nurturing of their souls. God, as they embrace these eight steps themselves and walk in them themselves and then walk along with others, and God, I just pray that they consistently remember that they're simply one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. God, would you keep that spirit in their hearts and give them the courage. God, I pray for Corey as he's standing also here this morning. God, thank you for his passion. I love his passion for this. God, and the vision that he has and where he's stepping in and the life that he's walking from and, and God, the experience that he can share and speak into um, many that he'll be walking with through this journey. God, keep him strong. Keep Colleen around him strong and their marriage strong and God, would you bless them. I pray for Carol and the board and Chris and the leadership of that board and God, all that they're doing and working and God, I pray that they would, man, Stay bold and courageous and not lose heart. When we get into this in month two, three, four, and the weariness sets in, God, help us to not lose heart. God, finally, I pray for those of us sitting here right now, sitting here and have just encountered this message, and I pray that you'd help us to, to just humbly embrace that we're not you. That we'd set down the control and the desire to manage our lives, especially our sin. God, we can't do it. Impress that on our hearts. God, I pray specifically for those that you need to break. God, do it gently. God, do it gently. God, and finally, I just thank you for Jesus. His grace and his mercy. Chapter 8, verse 1. God, uh, man, I just want to close with this thought. So now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, those sitting in this room right now that are in Jesus and Jesus is in them because of their faith in him, would they know without a shadow of a doubt that you look at them and you smile? You don't condemn. God, for those that aren't in Jesus, God, I pray that this morning something stirred in their heart, drew them to you, and they would maybe for the first time admit their sin, admit their need of you and your son Jesus and just call out to Jesus in faith believing that he 
is the solution and the savior for the sin and death that they wrestle with in their life. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. We come as we are, weary and broken, knowing that we find a safe spot to land, a God that is full of compassion, a God that is full of generous grace, ready to be lavished on those of us that simply step in and say, I'm not you. I can't manage this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.